You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's interview is with Donald Bungham, Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies and Philosophy at the University of Mary. We sat down with Donnie and his wife, Alicia, in the Gavin House Library to discuss how he first fell in love with philosophy and his current work at the University of Mary. Welcome to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. My name is Michael Bradley. I'm the Institute's Communications and Events Coordinator. And together with my colleague, Mark Franzen, our Programs Coordinator, we're delighted to be joined today by Dr. Donald Bungham. Donnie received his BS in Chemistry at the University of Chicago, got a couple of degrees at Oxford, we'll be asking you about that, and currently is Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Catholic Studies at the University of Mary. Donnie, thanks for being with us today. It's great to be here. So why don't you begin by telling us about your university education and everything that has happened since then for you academically between when you were at the University of Chicago and coming to the University of Mary. I understand that you were originally doing chemistry and then you had a kind of conversion to philosophy. So tell us how you got to being a a joint professor of Catholic studies and philosophy at University of Mary. Sure. Um, Well, I came to the University of Chicago and uh, initially, I think I was thinking pre-med, something like that. In high school, I had a really excellent AP chemistry teacher who was also the track coach and he was a he was a super sharp guy but sort of disgruntled with his life and he said that what he really wanted to do was to study philosophy and listen to jazz at the green mill and he wanted to study philosophy at the university of chicago so he kind of pointed me in that in that direction and so i love chemistry i thought the university of chicago was really nerdy and cool very excited to come here and to get into things and um I started with my intro to Gen Chem, absolutely loved it, and the summer after my freshman year got pointed to towards a, a Dreyfus uh, research fellowship, and so right away started looking for a lab, and I ended up um, with the late Professor Gregory Hillhouse, who was re- really an institution here at the University of Chicago. He ran the undergraduate chemistry major. And his lab was uh, in organometallic synthesis. Uh, I later learned that he actually picked me up to join his lab because he heard that I played a lot of baseball in high school. And he was uh, part of the the dynasty called Team Beer in the physical and biological sciences softball tournament. So there so, must have been steep competition. In yeah, the yeah, there was. It was <laughs> so we were we were three time or two time champions. We had a couple undefeated seasons, and uh, so it was really weird how I actually got into the lab. But got into the lab really enjoyed working in the lab. He was an unbelievable mentor. And that really shaped me in terms of learning how chemistry is done and, and seeing the, I always called it the dance of molecules. I, I loved it all the way through. Loved doing chemistry, and but gradually things started shifting. So um, I started off totally gangbusters, sort of pre-med with a bio, biochem, and chem major, then stripped off the bio, then stripped off the biochem, just doing chem, and then doing research every summer. And... Then I realized, well, I actually, I bought my MCAT books and I remember one January, like I I had my schedule all made for studying for the MCAT and I just don't want to do this. So then just chem major and no longer the pre-med stuff. And then I started, I was in the dorm, Max Pilevsky dorm, and 
with my now wife. She was then Alicia Bushman, now Alicia Bangham. And then also we spent a lot of time at Calvert House together. And um, so got to know her. She was a philosophy major. And so we would spend a lot of evenings going for walks, having talks, praying together. And listening to what she was doing sounded very, very, very cool. So what really hooked me and changed changed my course a little bit was I took a course on faith and reason here with uh, Dr. Michael Kramer, who's still here in the philosophy department. He does quite a bit of stuff for Lumen Christi, I think, or at least he did when I was here, yeah. And took this course on faith and reason, and it was pretty standard stuff. It was the relationship between faith and reason. It was arguments for God's existence, problem of evil, problem of suffering, uh, whether there can be belief on evidence, without evidence, these sorts of rationality. And I was absolutely hooked by this stuff. And it was really speaking to my predicament because what I was was a faithful Catholic participating in the liturgies here, which I really loved, but without a lot of philosophical formation. And a story I like to tell about coming to Chicago was I was in my initial Hume class called Philosophical Perspectives in the Humanities. And um, I remember we were reading the Iliad and I was very frustrated in class and I yelled at the instructor. I said, what are we supposed to do in this class? I read the text. I understood it. Now what? What, what more is there to say? And I said, well, you know, we, we, we make interpretations and we, we make arguments about what's true. And I literally thought an argument was something you had loudly with your parents. I'd, I'd never heard of, a, of an argument as a presentation of a conclusion structured around evidence that supports its truth. I'd never even heard of that before. And here I am at University of Chicago, very successful student. Like, my formation didn't, didn't prepare me to, to know about those things. So, not very intellectually formed, intellectually curious, faithful Catholic, and then in this lab with a bunch of extremely sharp atheists. And now I'm taking this course in faith and reason. And this was all the stuff that I wanted to know about. And now I finally had arguments to think about or, or terms or concepts to use to try to think about the difference between a secular and religious worldview, metaphysics, all the rest of it. So, so I was like, this is awesome. And then through my core classes in the humanities at U Chicago, I ran into a professor, he's now retired, named Constantine Fazolt. And he was uh, scholar of basically Enlightenment Europe and church and, and state relations. And he taught my um, Eurosiv course, and we studied the rule of St. Benedict. I was mesmerized by that. We could talk about some of the non-credit courses I did with the monks here, Benedictines. That was so important for me. But he opened a door for me. He said, why don't you apply for a Marshall scholarship? And I'd never heard of that before. But then... Um, they have a scholarship office here at the University of Chicago. So I got hooked in with them and applied to a lot of big scholarships and ended up uh, receiving the Marshall. And then that was uh, opened up two years to do something really, really different at Oxford. So my first year was in the theology faculty at Oxford, and it was a program in science and religion. And so I, I had a great science background and through the U Chicago core, enough philosophy and theology to, to say, well, I can write a paper and I know who Plato is and that sort of thing. But I was a sort of scientist interested in the humanities. And then the second year was in philosophical theology and I was sort of bootstrapping my way towards doing something else. And then after you that, at that time you wanted to do? Yeah, well, I had a dis it was a decision point during my philosophical theology year. And I really had to decide whether I was going to go back into grad school in chemistry or whether I would try to apply to philosophy programs. 
And so then I, I decided I want to try to go for philosophy. And um, through some of the connections I made at Oxford, actually one of the short papers I did was advised um, by a, a priest named Father Andrew Pinsent, who's the director of the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion at Oxford. And he did his PhD in philosophy at SLU at St. Louis University um, with Dr. Eleanor Stump. And so he pointed me out to her work. I read her work. She's an amazing Thomist medieval uh, philosopher and, and uh, metaphysician. And so uh, applied there, got in there in five years in St. Louis, which was really excellent, wrote with uh, Eleanor Stump and then the epistemologist uh, John Greco there. Uh, and then um, from there, ended up at University of Mary. So that's kind of my trajectory. Tell us about the University of Mary. For some of our listeners, probably it came to their attention when Don Briel, uh, mm. the late Don Briel, late in his life, moved there and began to help kind of rehabilitate the, uh, the, the Catholic culture there, the Catholic yeah. intellectual life. Yeah. So tell us about the university and tell us about your, not just your appointment in the programs, but your a position as the uh, leader of a Catholic studies house. The University of Mary, it's a Benedictine university in Bismarck, North Dakota. It was founded in the 50s by Benedictine sisters and uh, its mission from the very start was to form nurses and educators. And uh, the, those sisters also founded St. Alexius Hospital. So it was sort of a, it was a feeder program. There was a great need there for uh, nurses and educators. And it, and it retains that strength. That's one of our great strengths at the University of Mary. In the past 10 years, under the leadership of our president, um, Monsignor James Shea, we've added a really significant liberal arts focus. Our School of Arts and Sciences has grown dramatically. And um, he's also instituted a Catholic Studies program there um, with a lot of help from the Catholic Studies program at the University of St. Thomas. Don Briel has always helped us guide our, guide our program, and in the last several years of his life, he was our, our John Henry Newman chair there. So the University of Mary, in the past two years, uh, well, three years really, has used this beautiful house that where my w- wife and I now live. It's approximately 6,000 square feet. It's on 13 acres of wooded, hilly terrain. We have 10 deer that live on the property and pheasants and all sorts of, it's, it's high prairie living. It's really amazing. And so we, we're, our house is right across from the university and the house is designated under the Catholic Studies program, which is both a major in the university, just like philosophy, theology, nursing, all the other majors. So it's an academic program. But then it also has a very strong extracurricular component, and that stuff is all located more or less in the Catholic Studies house. And so my wife and I live there. We have two children. And our job is to make it thrive. And we had the opportunity to basically to write a mission statement for the house itself under the auspices of the Catholic Studies program. And, and basically what we've tried to do with it is to make it a house of leisure. So in the scriptures, you know, you read God saying, my house shall be a house of prayer. So our house will be a house of leisure. And leisure in the sort of sense of philosophical leisure. So doing that which is worthwhile in itself. Generally, it has a sort of contemplative aspect and it is meant to build up what you might call the Aristotelian friendship of the good, which is also the, a good disposition towards having a spiritual friendship that people like Jacques and Rice Maritain would be very proud of. Um, so all those sorts of things are at home. Um, we, have, uh, we have a weekly uh, community night, Thursday night. We usually have 100 students or more come, have discussions. Uh, faculty bring their family there. Um, so it's very open to that sort of thing. So that's every Thursday. Every Saturday, we have uh, an event called the Afternoon Parlor. And at the parlor, we will host a disputatio where students and faculty will sit in the hot seat and take a question on anyone, from anyone, on anything. It's sort of an intellectual free-for-all. And 
discuss some some really important topics in in ethics and metaphysics and theology in contemporary culture and i hear the i hear the questions continue to crop up throughout the semester this it, they sort of burn in in students craws it, it gets under their skin and and it keeps the discussion going uh, throughout the week and throughout the semester so it's it's been a tremendous and it's really enlivening for me to host that too it's i like being a bit of a showman and so i like to to wrestle with them a little bit so that's that's been really fun and then, and then we have a multiple um more one-off events throughout the year so we did a fantastic lecture we had a historian and a retired orthopedic surgeon give a two-hour lecture on Lourdes and so the history and and the science and the theology behind the healings and miracles and apparitions at Lourdes that was just absolutely fascinating uh, and then this past year we had an event called the Aquinas Gala for uh, for the feast of St. Thomas Aquinas and we had uh, six members of the philosophy faculty host three debates on uh, different questions near and dear to Aquinas's heart and we had over a hundred students come for that for for three hours it was very dressy formal affair and I think my wife made 400 cookies for it and it was just it was mind-blowing and the students were were just riveted asked they, they didn't want to leave really so the house has just been a tremendous blessing for us it's very life-giving and very stimulating in terms of the conversations that go on and on the sorts of and I guess a third thing that, that we also tend to do is we will we'll host guests of the university it's a wonderful environment to have a more intimate gathering with big speakers that come into the University of Mary. So George Weigel has come to the house. Peter Kraft has come to the house. Um, we had Father Robert Spitzer come to the house. Paul Griffiths, whom I first met through Lumen Christi here, came to the house. We had him for a tea. So it's completely accidental that I get to see and meet and talk with all of these, uh, you know, really great figures. But, you know, it's a great setting for faculty and students to interact with them. It sounds like it's not just a hub for the Catholic studies majors, but really it's kind of a hub for intellectual life for the whole university community. Definitely is. And that that's actually the, the mission and the model of the Catholic studies program at the University of Mary. I guess what you could say is its mission is not significantly different from the mission of the university as a whole, to be a university formed according to the mind of Newman and the idea of a university. So trying to form habits of mind that lead students and faculty to see truth as a universal whole to, and to see the interconnections among disciplines, to see the hierarchies among disciplines and as all tr truth leading to the first truth, something like that. But in the Catholic Studies program, it's pursued, you might say, what do we want to say? It's pursued with greater intentionality, with greater time commitment, and, and I guess with greater attention paid towards the integration of the different parts of knowledge. And so everyone who's everyone who's a faculty member in Catholic studies also has a joint appointment in some other disciplines. So we have Catholic studies history, Catholic studies theology, I'm in Catholic studies philosophy, and uh, in the future the plan is to have someone in, in lots of disciplines, Catholic studies in physics or, or biology would be appropriate. Um, we're hiring in Catholic studies in English. So the university as a whole is supposed to be like that. The Catholic studies program does this a bit more intentionally. But it's meant to be 11 for the university as a whole. So all of our Catholic Studies events are, are going to be open to the university as a whole. And we have a great number of Catholic Studies students who participate in them, but a ton of other students too. It, actually, some of the best afternoon parlors that we've had have been where we've had, I remember one particular, a, a nursing major was there, and one of the questions in the hot seat was concerning end-of-life issues. And so she's she, given her requirements and her, and her 
position in her degree, was unable to pursue an additional Catholic studies major or minor, but loved coming to the extracurricular programming. And then during this particular disputatio was chirping in with all of her experiences dealing concretely with end-of-life cases in the hospital because she was doing an internship at the time. And so some of the things dealing with intubation and things like that it was so helpful to have her experience. And she was a well-formed Catholic as well, and so was looking at things in light of faith. But to have her on the ground, rather than us philosophers just opining about things, it was just, it was so awesome. That's really how interdisciplinary conversation is supposed to go. So we had both the universal and particular in the same room at the same time. It was really awesome. So when you have this extracurricular op- opportunity, a student like her couldn't pursue the major Given, given her background and interests, whatever, that's fine. But you still have the opportunity to have these really rich, rewarding conversations with other people. And, and she brought a lot to the table, and it's just, it fills out the university for students like that and for, and for students who are pursuing it, you know. Because they might not be able to have that internship that she had to see the end-of-life issue in the concrete. So it sounds like your plate is, is almost full with these yeah. extracurricular activities. When you're in the classroom itself, what sorts of classes are you teaching? Are these... General electives are these parts of a core curriculum that all students have to take. And also, what is it that you're researching on the side, or what did you write your dissertation on? Is there a kind of connection between what you studied under Eleanor Stump at hmm. St. Louis and the sorts of things you're teaching in the classroom today? So in terms of my teaching, everyone at University of Mary, the standard load is a 4-4, so four sections uh, fall, four sections in spring. And I'm going into my third year now, so this past year was the first year that I've taught courses other than some of the philosophy requirements. So the core curriculum at University of Mary, two philosophy, two theology required. Everyone takes an intro to philosophy course called Search for Truth, which is um, topically based. So we do truth, goodness, justice, God, evil, friendship, some big questions in philosophy. We try to introduce them to the practice of philosophy and some of the big and relevant and interesting questions in philosophy. And then uh, everyone has to take an ethics course, and we offer two options, either philosophical ethics or a course called Search for Happiness, which I teach, and that one's cross-listed with Catholic studies. So basically, the way that I run it is the first half is treating happiness philosophically. So we do some of the competing alternative theories of happiness, so utilitarianism, hedonism, Aristotelianism. And then the second half is through the help of St. Thomas, St. Francis de Sales, work up a theological vision of happiness, happiness culminating in um, the vision of God, and then the practice of happiness on earth through prayer and the sacraments are really emphasized. So that's a sort of foundational course that a lot of students like to take. But this past year, I've also taught two upper-level courses. So um, one was in philosophy, and that was epistemology, uh, or we call it philosophy of knowledge. Uh, that was in the fall, and then in the spring, I taught a course in philosophical theology, which is sort of a catch-all term for studying theological topics with a mind towards the relevant philosophical issues. So that course treated cosmological arguments for God's existence and divine simplicity, which are sort of natural theological topics. And then we did the atonement, we did the Eucharist, and we did the incarnation. And uh, there we were looking at the sort of ethics and metaphysics of those theological topics. So let's see. So crossover. So in my own research, uh, I work on a couple of different things. I actually learned this from William Carroll, who's a friend of the Lumen Christi Institute. I took a couple of uh, lectures from him at Blackfriars at Oxford, and he described this triangle that's always stuck with me, the triangle of God, creation, and the human person. 
And I, I guess that's basically my interest is the, is the relationship between God creation and the human person. I guess more specifically, it would be for me, God creation and the human mind. So my training is in epistemology. I've worked primarily in contemporary epistemology to this point. I've also done quite a bit in metaphysics uh, under Eleanor Stump. And then also I've worked on what you might call a philosophical psychology. So the study of, of, of the will and the passions. So one of the things that where there is kind of an interesting crossover is Eleanor Stump has, has done a lot of very interesting work on the phenomenon of joint attention. And joint attention is very difficult to define philosophically, but it's basically the situation you find yourself in when you and another person are focused on one and the same thing. So you and I are having this conversation right now, and it's clear to both of us that we are speaking, that we're both here. You know, I can point to this microphone and we can both focus on it together. And there's something very interesting that goes on when people are focusing on something together versus if you were looking at the microphone and I were in the next room looking at the microphone, we would both be looking at it, but not necessarily together if we didn't each know that the other was. So there's sort of phrases to, as a catch-all term for this, would be a melding of minds. It's mutually manifest to both of us that, that we're focusing on the same thing at the same time. Well, it turns out that this phenomenon is crucially important for human development. Children can't learn language unless, or, or really struggle to learn language unless they're able to engage in this sort of joint attention with each other. And Eleanor Stump uses autism as a sort of test case for what happens when joint attention is impeded. It seems that in the case of persons with autism spectrum disorder, that joint attention is not impossible, but usually very difficult for them to engage in. And this seems to explain some of the, the other difficulties that are sort of downstream cascades from this. So she uses this phenomenon of joint attention to develop a really, really interesting solution to the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen to good people? In a nutshell, her answer is because it's an occasion to grow in union with God, where union with God is cashed out in this sort of melding of minds between God and the human person in a joint attentional type way. So what I do with my students is, in my search for truth, I, I do problem of evil stuff. And then in my ethics, I talk about prayer and I talk about the gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit. And these are both opportunities to talk about contemporary work on these topics, and I've actually published uh, a couple of dialogue pieces with Eleanor Stump um, where I'm dialoguing with her work, sort of a criticism and extension of what she's doing. I look at it specifically in the case of The Dark Night of the Soul, where suffering and, and charity seem to be really closely interacting, but the joint attention seems to be impeded, so what do you say about that? And so I've worked on this some, and so I bring this very interesting phenomenon of joint attention in little children, in persons with autism, in healthy adults where it's functional, where it's not functional, where it's working, and show them how this sort of stuff in contemporary psychology and, and cognitive science is actually relevant to extending in and enriching our theories, uh, philosophical theories of the relationship between God, creation, and the human mind. So that's a really interesting place, and, and the students are just captivated by this. And there's tons of, of course, you know, videos on YouTube of, of babies focusing for the first time and finally joint attention actually happening. And so they love this, and, and it becomes a, a great thing for them to latch on to. I think some of them have found it spiritually rewarding, you know, trying to... It, it, it helps you to figure out a little bit what it might be to become like a little child. And I think it helps. It's, it's definitely helped me through that as well. I was going I, to I, ask if in your yeah. parenting life, your research has as you see it kind of born sure. through in your ability to, to understand some of what it takes to help bring along your children in development. 
Yeah, I think it absolutely has. It's been really interesting for me to, you know, I'm, I'm not a developmental psychologist, so all I know is kind of what we went through. I, I took a course on this where Stump was presenting some of her research, and, and then we had a couple of really awesome conferences at SLU. I visited one with my uh, director, Andrew Pinson, in Oxford, where philosophers and psychologists and, are all getting together. So, so I have a layman's understanding of the phenomenon. But one of the big indicators that it's starting to happen is pointing. So psychologists will distinguish between proto-imperative and proto-declarative points. So proto-imperative points is you point to tell daddy to get you something. So point and grunt at the water bottle means get me the water bottle. Versus point and hoot at, you know, the monkey in the cages. Oh, look at that. Isn't that interesting? That's a monkey, something like that. So the purpose of the point from the child is to say, hey, will you share this with me? And so marking that out, it's, it re it's really when you start to see the flowering of mind in a little child. So I've, with both of my girls, it was sort of a big day when I noticed that. It was, that was really fun. And then also something that's been important for us has been the phenomenon of social referencing. So this will happen with little children. When a new object will come into their environment, they don't know what to make of it. And so they'll look at it, and then, and then they, look to, they look to mommy. They look to daddy to try to figure out, what the heck is this thing? If it's a... If it's a new person, if it's a new toy, if it's, a, if it's an animal they've never seen, if it's, you know, something crashes down the stairs, if there's something distressing, whatever, it doesn't matter. They're, they're trying to figure out how to get a take on these things. And so in terms of my parenting, I guess I've recognized that, that the phenomenon happens. And then I also recognize it as an, as an opportunity to try to shape a first encounter between my children and whatever it is they're seeing for the first time. And of course, affect and emotional, what, basically what you're communicating emotionally is, is really important. Children don't necessarily have words yet. And so to give a big, you know, positive response or scary, big faces, you know, you can see me here gesturing a lot. I do it. And, and so just to bring out that theatrical side, um, when you see that social referencing thing, I've, I've taken it to be an opportunity to help my children get a take on the world and, and to do that through trying to communicate to at least a, an initial emotional take on it, on what it is and how to interact with it. So yeah, it definitely has. It's impacted my, my parenting in fairly measurable ways. That's a real blessing to have your research and your studies, your, your home life and your life in the classroom be kind of melding in this respect yeah. uh, so closely. And, and I also see on your biography on the University of Mary's webpage that you're a jazz saxophonist, which yes. makes me think that you must be the real envy of your high school teacher because you studied philosophy at the University of Chicago yeah. and you're playing jazz somewhere. I never made it to the Green Mill though, so <laughs> didn't quite get there. I don't play as much as, I, as I'd like to these days. I think part of being a young professor, it's been very hard for me to realize this is a time to really put your nose to the grindstone. I got a great little line I, I love mantras, so I got a great little mantra from the chair of our philosophy department at SLU, Father Ted Vitale, and he said, bloom where you're planted. And he was a, he was a Boston guy, sort of a tough-nosed guy. He, he sent a lot of SLU graduates off to wonderful teaching careers, and the point was you, you don't know where you're going to end up, and you don't know what sort of situation you're going to have. Be grateful for it, and then make the most of it. And so at University of Mary, we have this unbelievable opportunity with the house and with my colleagues in philosophy and Catholic studies. And so, so it's, been, it's been time to work and, and to build. And we're a very young university in terms of our faculty, so, so there's a lot of great work to do. But I will say, I do miss it. When I was here at University of Chicago, I played in the Jazz Extet under Mawada Bowden. I had some marvelous times here. I played with a couple of bands in the inner city in Chicago. 
One was called Intense City, and then one was called The Moving On Band. Played a lot of R&B, funk, disco, uh, Michael Jackson. I mean, I have memories. One of my favorite memories was I was 19 years old playing in a bar on the south side, and they were very strict about their 21 and older uh, laws. And so between sets, it was, it was in the middle of winter, it was freezing. I had to go upstairs to like the, the little attic that they had. And it was freezing up there because they didn't heat it. But thankfully, they had a stove, a gas stove. So I would sit on a bench next to the gas stove with all four burners going, waiting for the next set to start. 19-year-old uh, guy. So, so oh, it was, it was so much fun. And then um, in Oxford... Uh, I played with a hilarious, hilariously named band called the Donut Kings. But basically, we were a traditional big band. We played a lot of swing. And uh, it, I had some amazing experiences there. I played for, it was called the Hunt Ball at Christchurch College. So Christchurch College is the largest college in Oxford, one of the wealthiest. And they have British royalty sons and daughters of dukes and all the rest of it who go there and so we played the Christchurch hunt ball and so there they are in their coattails with their sashes and crests on their on their sashes and we were all dressed the donut kings were all dressed in tuxedos and we really felt like the hired help um, but we played a great swing set and and we got to see young men and women who learned how to dance and who really knew how to make the best of a jazz band. I'd say those images, like, that, that'll never be me, but it's formed my imagination. And some of the things that we do in Catholic Studies House are informed by that. So we have British-style high tees and things like that. So the life of music has put me in contact with sort of high and low of different parts of society. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that because it, it never leaves you. And it's fun to try to put things together in ways. And, you know, we're in Bismarck, North Dakota. And we have, we have a lot of opportunity to show students things that they've never seen before. And that's been really exciting. And so the, the music's been a big part of that. It seems clear to me that you're living life to the full, yeah. and uh, it's exciting to think about the the future that lies in store for places like University of Mary, with with folks like you bringing so much joy and enthusiasm to your various forms of, of ministry there. Donnie Bungham, Joint Professor of Philosophy and Catholic Studies at the University of Mary, thanks for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The music for this episode, Sequence for St. Hilarion, is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists-in-Residence, Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.